Reformation 500. This is our third uh, shot at this. The first time was back in October, the 30th of October, the Sunday night before, um, uh, what do we call it? All Saints Day, which is October 31st. No, no uh, what do we call the 31st? Yeah, All Saints Day. Way back in the day is October 31st, also known in modern times as Halloween. Um, on October the 31st of 1517, Martin Luther launched, he didn't know it at the time that he was launching it, but he launched what we call the Reformation, and this year is the 500th anniversary of that. He did it by nailing 95 statements, 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and these were statements that were nailed to the door for public consumption to draw people into conversations about the things of God in Christ in the Bible. And what it really set off was a reformation that the world is still feeling the effects of to this day. So we talked through uh, that briefly, and then we broke down the uh, battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and talked about the circumstances under which Martin Luther penned that song. Then the next time that we met, we talked about William Tyndale and how God used him to impact you and me to this day by giving us a Bible in English and how monumental that was. And William Tyndale was a, was a reformer. He wrote his New Testament uh, in English in 1534. And uh, much of the Bible, maybe even 90% of this Bible that we have today in the NIV or the ESV is William Tyndale's work. It's gone largely unchanged over 500 years or so. Well, tonight we're going to look at uh, kind of a bigger picture. Why did the Reformation happen? And what are the, the five core tenets that came out of the Reformation? I'm not talking about the five points of Arminianism or the five points of Calvinism. I'm talking about the five tenets of the Reformation. And I gave that on the back of the worship uh, schedule this morning, and hopefully you still have that. I'd love for that to be in your Bible because we're going to look at those over the next couple of months one by one. Let me start tonight by asking this question. Why is it worth our time to study the Reformation? Said another way, why would we study what's called church history? It's history. Why, why do we need to spend time on what happened 500 years ago or 300 years ago or 1800 years ago well okay so we don't repeat past mistakes that's a tremendous reason for studying any kind of history and especially church history Um, church history matters listen to this because the church is universal this is a term that we've used sometimes in our gatherings there's the local church and there's the universal church the local church is in this room right this minute was in that big room this morning and that is a local church representation in the kingdom of christ but there's this universal church concept that is true as well and it's made up of all christians around the globe anyone that believes in jesus christ is the only way to salvation and being reconciled to god is a member of christ's church and so we're universally aligned with christians in seoul south korea and in the middle east and everywhere around the globe but there's also the concept of the universal church that transcends time and we are universally aligned with all christians over the course of history And there's a verse that says this. There's a cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12. There's a cloud of witnesses that is urging us on 
and so the church universal is not bound just by geography it's also covering a broad range of time and so the reformation 500 years ago we're looking at the church universal even though all those people to this day are dead many of them are in the presence of christ and so that's one reason that we study church history because it's not dead that history and what happened in the church 500 years ago is still alive and impacting us today because of this concept the reformers are our fathers in the faith but they're also our brothers in the faith and sisters in the faith and so we walk together with them in this concept of the cloud of witnesses that is expressed in hebrews the reformers are pioneers who have set a course that we are taking and advancing they got us to one point we're now engaged in the church and we're advancing the church to another point hopefully we're not backtracking but we're advancing and there will be those after us that maybe will look into things that we did right and wrong and correctively follow after the lord um, we are as as uh, curtis said i think we can be more faithful as church members if we understand what those that went before us did right and did wrong and so we need to keep that in mind as well when we study church history i really like this quote that i found in some of my study there's a guy named peter of blois b-l-o-i-s he said this we are like dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants thanks to them we see farther today than they did yesterday that's a good reason to study the reformation and the reformers and you want to know what's amazing about peter of blois and his quote he died 300 years before martin luther was born (laughs) and so he thought 300 years before the reformation that those that went before him were giants upon whose shoulders we stand and so shouldn't we take the same attitude as we look at church history to this day Well, with that, I want to give you some context. I want to give you the historical context for the Reformation that happened in the 1500s, okay? In the early 16th century, there was an extreme civil unrest all over Europe and really all over the globe. The the culture was uneasy. It was a time that was best defined as a time of great anxiety, across all peoples, across national boundaries, across across language boundaries, geographic boundaries. Everyone collectively was riddled with anxiety. And the anxiety stemmed around three things. And then there was a fourth piece that I'll introduce to this. And these four things combined to bring about the need for and the spark and the fuel for the Reformation. Uh, The first is this. There was a great fear and anxiety during the 1500s of death. Why? Say it out loud. Bubonic plague. The black plague. Uh, During the 1500s and 1600s, one-third of Europe died from the plague. Think about that. One-third of Europe. If a third of America right now, we're what, 300,000 people roughly? 350,000? Huh? I mean, I mean, yeah, a million people. Think about that. A million people dying from the plague. And so you had a culture that was terrified of death and suffering. 
Society had teetered on the edge of famine for two centuries before this, dating back to the 1300s. There was a famine around the globe because they couldn't produce enough food to feed everybody. The agricultural shortage in the late 1300s drove many people to cannibalism. You have stories of people going and taking criminals that were hung in the gallows down and eating them. That was commonplace in the 13 and 1400s. And that famine still spread on into the 1500s. Society had no answer for the bubonic plague. There was no inoculation that could be given. Once you got it, there was no cure to turn it. It claimed, as I said, a third of the European population between 1300 and 1500. So this culture was terrified of death. Also, you had during this time the invention of the gunpowder cannon. And that fueled warfare like the world had never known. And so there were wars and people were dying in wars in numbers that had surpassed anything that humanity had ever experienced. And then last, the death issue touched everybody because death did not discriminate based on country, based on wealth or poverty, based on male or female. Death went and got everyone equally. You couldn't have enough money to avoid the plague. The plague got you no matter what. And so you had a culture during the 1500s that was petrified of the concept of death and suffering. The second thing that the, the, uh, the culture was anxious about was guilt. These were a people that were so in the bondage of guilt from their sin and they had no biblical means to deal with their guilt. And so they went and created a lot of inventions to deal with their guilt. Death that they had experienced implied judgment. And so they associated this one-third of Europe dying to the judgment of God. And so we are guilty people. Woe is us. What can we do? There is no hope for us. And so you had all kinds of responses to this guilt. You had the ascetics. The ascetics were people that walked through towns with leather whips, whipping themselves, hoping to inflict upon themselves enough punishment to make themselves right with God. You had an open display of people punishing themselves, hoping that God would see that punishment and not continue to punish them. You had the sacraments in the Catholic Church that rose up, and people started paying for indulgences. If they would pay money to the church, God would forgive them for their sins and maybe death would not visit them. And so basically you had this, this good luck charm of paying money into the church so that God would find favor with me. That is horrifyingly wicked. Because you can't pay enough money to overcome your sins against God. But you had a culture that in this guilt and fear of death was paying indulgences to the church. You had the uh, pilgrimages that, that people would go on to go visit churches. They would go to churches and they would visit the relics that are in that church. These might be chalices that were thought to be the one that Christ drank out of in the Last Supper. Uh, these relics might be the finger of a saint from the year 353. And if I could just go touch the altar that that finger is embedded in, that pilgrimage to that place would bring me forgiveness with God. You had the veneration of the saints. If I could pray to the right saint, then maybe God would overlook my sin and my guilt would be covered by praying to saint, you fill in the blank. And they had saints, and they still do to this day, for everything. 
You had feast days and on and on and on. You had all these religious rituals that people were trying to address their guilt with. And these were getting them nowhere with God. And they knew it, and so their guilt just kept being heaped upon and growing and growing. You had uh, the turning to masses. Uh, masses, even today, the Catholic masses are a means of grace. And if you partake of the mass, your guilt before God will be dealt with. None of this worked. None of this worked. You had, uh, on this mass uh, issue, you had even the kings of countries going to great extremes. Listen to this. Emperor Charles IV, he left financial provisions for 30,000 masses to be said in his behalf after his death. He funded 30,000 masses in his honor so that his guilt before God while he was in purgatory would be overcome. Think about that. You had Henry VIII of England. He issued an edict that masses must be said for his soul while the world shall endure. Now you think about that. The world is still enduring to this day. Do you think people to this day are saying masses on behalf of Henry VIII? No, but he is a king edicted, if that's even a term, proclaimed an edict that even you and I, are subjects of England, should be uttering masses for him until the world no longer existed. So you see, even in the high-level kings, a fear and a, and a dread of the guilt for their sins, and they were going to great lengths to cover for that. As a result, the late medieval period saw a frantic effort to build new churches, to increase the importance of indulgences, to build these churches, and an unending effort to earn merits for forgiveness. And driving all of this was the church's teaching on purgatory. And people believed that purgatory was a real place, which it is not, and that they needed to do things to get out of purgatory. The third thing that was going on that created great anxiety in the culture was this, and, and I don't know how to term it other than this, the loss of meaning. The loss of meaning was troubling people. Things that people knew to be set in concrete, fact, and non-negotiable were being up turned uh, overturned and there was great in upheaval in the things that were certain uh, first of all the travels of columbus christopher columbus and magellan up upturned upended the concept that the world is flat and it was discovered the world is not flat and people had lived with this mentality for centuries no the world is round so all of a sudden, you've got a major shift in your thinking about even the world that you live upon. It's not flat, it's round. There were observations of uh, Copernicus as he looked into the stars and into space. They started understanding that the boundaries of the universe that were once thought to be set were not because he got a telescope that looked beyond the boundaries that had been set before him. And so now, all of a sudden, the universe is not as compact and small as we thought. It's much bigger than we thought. And this world that we're on, it's actually round. It's not flat. Then there was this idea of wars. When these wars happened, guess what changed? National boundaries. And so nations started changing their shapes, and that really unsettled people. The, the meaning that they lived with, France is France, and Germany is Germany, all these things were changing. All these were happening at one time. During all of this, there were peasant protests and revolts that challenged the leadership 
of the kings over the countries. And next thing you know, even human relations and human society was being upended. And it was changing dramatically. And so when you look at all of these things happening at the same time, the worldview of a well-ordered universe spanning the stars and the planet and the national boundaries and the human relations, all of it was being wiped clean and rewritten. And so the loss of meaning really unsettled people who were riddled with guilt, and the guilt was driven by their fear of death. And I want you to know that the providential hand of God was stirring all of these things. I think Christopher Columbus was a a movement of God to, to break these people's mindsets that we've got everything figured out. And when you say the world is no longer flat, it's round, that is that is a change galore, right? What if we figured out today that the world's not really round? That, that would impact us. I don't care who we are. And so all of these things were being done under the providential hand of God. And I believe that they were establishing a culture that was ripe for reformation in the church. Ah, the church. So here's the fourth thing. With those three things happening... The fourth thing was there was great, during the 1500s and 1400s, great religious upheaval. Witchcraft in the 1500s at the time of Martin Luther was at an all-time high. I don't know that witchcraft has been more prevalent in society than it was during the 1500s. During the 16th century, which is the whole century of the 1500s, They estimate that 30,000 people were executed for witchcraft. That's a big number just in Europe. That's a big number. Uh, But witchcraft was practiced prevalently. They didn't need to be killed. They needed to be converted, didn't they? Uh, The Roman Catholic Church, during all of this uncertainty about truth, uncertainty about life or death, and guilt, the Roman Catholic Church took advantage of these three anxieties to build a, a, an ecclesial empire that still stands in some ways to this very day. Um, they did this. They established uh, many things that were abuses of church authority. One is simony. Simony is the buying, the buying of ecclesiastical privileges. You could come pay a priest some sum of money or the priests could use some sum of money to get them privileges within the church that you otherwise couldn't. And if you did such, you would be on the good side of God. There was also the practice of nepotism. Many of the clerics, the priests, and the bishops would hire their sons to be in positions within the churches. And when you have families running churches you can tend to have some problems that you never bargained for. This was running rampant throughout the 1500s in the Roman Catholic Church. You also had priestly sexual sin like you've never seen before. They had this concept of celibacy and did not allow priests to marry. Well, guess what? These priests fell tragically in all kinds of sexual sin. Every kind of sexual sin that you even see in modern times was being practiced in the 1500s. And it was running rampant amongst the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church uh, and being overlooked by, by the congregations. You also had the, uh, what, I'm, what I've termed here pontiff egomania. Pontiff is the Pope. The popes throughout those ages were egomaniacs. 
And I wish I could use a stronger term. Uh, Gregory VII, listen to what he said. The Pope is the only one whose feet are to be kissed by all the princes of the world. That's egomania. Uh, Innocent III, which is not a good name for him because he's not innocent. Innocent III said this, The Pope occupies the middle position between the divine and the human, lower than God, but higher than man. This was proclaimed across the landscape. Popery, it's Pope egomania. Boniface VIII said, We declare, we state, we define, and we pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. We are to be subject to the one that we call Lord. And he is no mere man. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And I could go on and on. You look at all the popes through that era, and they were full of themselves. Full of themselves. Putting themselves just this far below God himself. And so that's the culture that existed in the 1500s. And this is the culture that Martin Luther went after with his 95 Thesis on October the 31st of 1517. And so the reformers, and there's many of them, the reformers uh, were very specific in their response to this cultural enigma that was going on in Europe at the time. And so we're going to look at the five theological points that have come out of the Reformation tonight real quickly as, a, as an overview and understand uh, what we can... This is a really nice way to summarize the Reformation with these five stances that the reformers took. Now, first of all, the reformers believed that the world desperately wanted and needed nothing short of reconciliation with God for the forgiveness of their sins. That is the purpose of the Reformation, to get people reconciled to God for their sins that they feel guilty about. And so this was best seen in Martin Luther. He, he's the first guy called the father of the Reformation. He didn't declare it. it. It got declared after the fact when you look back on his contribution to this. But you can see this cultural issue in the life of Martin Luther. I want you to listen to his conversion story. He's walking one day as a law student in law school down a trail, and there is a great storm, and right nearby to him, some say within 20 yards, lightning strikes the ground. <clears throat> and in that moment, Martin Luther is scared to death. That's the first thing that was gripping the culture, right? So Martin Luther had his own fear of death in that moment. And in that moment, he says to St. Anne, I will become a monk if you spare my life. He prayed to a saint because he was a Catholic. Well, he became a monk. He made good on his promise. And in his monkery, in his monkhood, as he studied the scriptures, the Latin scriptures, he became riddled with guilt. Because he saw that he had wronged the holy God. And he saw no way that he could make himself right with God. And every time he paid an indulgence, every time he made a pilgrimage, every time he touched a relic, every time he said three Hail Marys, he didn't feel any better afterwards. So now he's scared to death into the monkery. And as a monk, he gets no relief from this guilt that he has. Well, then he also starts seeing throughout the church the loss of truth. Because what he thought was true, as he looks into the scriptures, it's not true. 
And so he had a crisis of that. And then he watched the church function day in and day out. And he, he rebelled. He said, no way am I going to contribute to this. So Luther was just like the culture that he lived in. Scared of death, covered with guilt, uh, the, troubled over the loss of truth and meaning, and ab- ab- abhorred at what was going on in the church. And so he was just like his culture, perhaps only more so, and he was far more ambitious and bold to do something about it. So born out of this turmoil, we come to these five tenets of the Reformation, and they're called the five solas. I'm giving you a little Latin here tonight. Sola means what? Alone. Okay, that's the Latin word for alone. There's five solas. Uh, it, it also means only, and it is a term of exclusivity. The five solas were not a blueprint that was drawn up before the Reformation was launched. In fact, these five solas were arrived at decades after the Reformation happened. When you look back, you say, wow, right there is how you would summarize the Reformation. There's five onlys that came out of the Reformation. And I want you to know these five onlys still stand today, and they must be what we as a church are founded upon, period. And there's not a sixth or a seventh. There's five of them. Uh, The five solas were not quantified until really uh, sometime in the late 1600s, almost the 1700s. And so it was 100 years later that these, these were established. And they, again, like I said, are a review of what literally happened in the Reformation years of 1517 to, I don't know, 1575. So here they are, the five solas of the Reformation. The first one is sola scriptura. Let me hear from you. What do you think that means? Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Now you've got your notes about it. Don't cheat, okay? Scripture alone. Isn't that a great statement? Doesn't that, if I don't say anything else tonight, don't you go, yeah, Scripture alone alone. So this means that scripture alone, not church tradition, or not human authority, only scripture is the basis for the belief and practice of the church of God. Scripture alone drives it. The Bible alone is our highest authority because it is the word of God himself. And he inspired it to be written. And it is sufficient in and of itself to drive us in our living our lives as individuals and as a church. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is a sola scriptura verse if there ever was one. And that's the verse that the, the Reformers stood upon. The doctrine that the Bible alone is the ultimate authority was the foundational principle of the Reformation. It all started with God's Word. You've got to have somewhere to to base out of. And so this is the root structure of the Reformation. When the Reformers used the words sola scriptura, they were expressing their concern for the Bible's authority. And what they meant is that the Bible alone was our ultimate authority, not the Pope, not the church. Not the traditions of the church. Not the traditions of the church councils. Those were important so long as they coincided with Scripture. If they didn't, we do not listen to them because we listen to the Scriptures. That's the issue that was at play in the Reformation. 
They said other sources of authority do have important roles to play in the church. There is a role for elders to have authority in a church. Okay, for fathers to have authority in their families, husbands to have an authority, a biblical authority over their wives. Yes, those are all in play. We're not blowing those up, but those have to be exercised. Those authorities have to be exercised consistent with the authority that was delegated to those people through the scriptures. And so, in 1521, at the historic interrogation of Martin Luther in the Diet of Worms, he declared his conscience to be captive to the Word of God, saying this, Unless I am overcome with testimonies from Scripture or with evident reasons, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, since they have often erred and contradicted one another, I am overcome by the Scripture texts which I have adduced, and may and my conscience is bound by God's Word. And so he said, to go against God's Word, I cannot and will not. God help me. <laughs> and he was convicted because he defamed the authority of the popes and the councils and subjected himself to the word of God. So there's sola scriptura. The next one is solus Christus. What do you think that means? Christ alone. Salvation from sin comes through Christ alone. He alone paid the price for sin and, and through his death as a sinless substitute, and he alone defeated sin and death through his bodily resurrection. It is the only way that man can be made right with God through Christ alone. First uh, Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There you have it, solus Christus, straight out of the Bible. And our first tenet is sola scriptura. And we're using sola scriptura to prove solus Christus. You start seeing how these things build on one another. The Reformation called the church back to faith in Christ as the sole mediator between God and man. Before that, it was the Pope and the priests. The church of the Middle Ages spoke about Christ often. The church that failed to do so could hardly claim to be Christian. So he was mentioned in their services. But the medieval church had added many human achievements to Christ's work. So that it was no longer possible to say that salvation was entirely by Christ and his atonement. It was Christ plus. And the reformers never said this, but we say it today. Jesus Christ plus something equals Nothing. Christ alone, with no additions to him, and obviously no subtractions. The Roman church held that there was a purgatory, and that the souls that were there detained are helped by the intercession of faithful saints, and that the saints are to be venerated and invoked upon, and that their relics are to be venerated, and through this veneration, people could be brought into harmony with God. And the reformer said, solus Christus. There's no room for saints. Yeah. Well, and you bought it by praying to the saint. Would you give me 
Or would you bestow on my dead relative some of your holiness so that they would get out of purgatory? This is absolutely biblically fictitious. The Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This was the most basic of all heresies, as the Reformers rightly perceived it. And it was the work of God plus our own righteousness. And they said, there's no way, there's no plus here at all. And so the Reformation motto, Solus Christus, affirmed that salvation has been accomplished once and for all by the mediatorial work of the historical Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Addressing this, John Calvin said in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Christ stepped in, he took the punishment upon himself and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied God. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. That's it. That is the Reformation principle of solus Christus. Now let's go to the third one, sola gratia. What do you think that is? Grace alone. Salvation is by the grace of God alone. There is no merit found within us in which we earn our salvation, nor is the forgiveness of sin based upon our good works. It's all based on the works of Christ. Christ did the work to get us salvation. Here's Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And Christ is the bestower of it. And so here we have this. The words of sola gratia mean that human beings have no claim upon God. That is, God owes us nothing except for just and deserved punishment for our many sins and our willful sins. Therefore, if he does not save sinners, which he does in the case of some but not all, it is only because it pleases him to do it. And it's his grace that would be bestowed upon those that are forgiven. Indeed, apart from this grace and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that it flows from, no one would be saved, since in our lost condition, human beings are not capable of winning, of seeking out, or even of cooperating with God in grace. So it's grace alone that God would save any one of us, much less many of us. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we are all in trouble, hopeless. Because we're dead in our don't fix battery issue. Can't help. All right, so here we go. The words of sola gratia mean that human beings have no claim upon God. The Roman Church taught that mass is a sacrifice which is truly propitiatory in other words it covered our sins the masses do that's not true that's a human tradition that was inserted into christianity and they went on to say that by the mass god grants us grace so are we on (laughs) god grants us grace (coughs) 
and that by, by the Mass, God grants us grace and the gift of penitence, and it re, this remits our faults and even our enormous sins. That's just not true. Uh, taking of the Lord's Supper alone is not going to get it done. I think I'll just stick with this at this point. Uh, our righteous standing before God is imputed to us by grace because of the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, sola scriptura builds upon it with solus Christus to now sola gratia. And so, grace alone expressed through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus Christ, releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from death to spiritual life. And so, we have this pillar that we stand upon even to this day, and that we are saved by grace alone. We sing hymns about this, right? Amazing grace. That's what inspired songs like that. The fourth one, sola fide. Faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone, yes, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the object of our faith is the sinless Son of God who died and rose again. Galatians 3, 6 through 11. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, by God before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Said another way, we can't work our way rightly into God's grace. We have to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's through that faith that we are made right with God. The Reformers never tired of saying that justification is by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone, and they got all of this from Scripture alone. You see how they just start building on one another. So according to Martin Luther, this, faith alone, This is the article by which the church stands or falls because it involves the very matter or substance of what a person must understand and believe to be saved. No faith, no salvation. Remember this morning I said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We did all these mighty works. And Jesus said, I never knew you. And we know Christ by faith. We know him in our hearts, not our minds. Not our hands, not our feet. So then the fifth one. Soli Deo Gloria. What is that? For the glory of God alone. Deo is the Latin for God. And Gloria is glory. Mankind as image bearers of gods are called to think, speak, and act for the glory of God alone in all facets of life. The Catholic Church taught at this time that really the, the high and mighty people were the, the monks and the friars and the priests and the bishops. The reformer said, uh-uh, all people are high and mighty before God because they're image bearers. 
And whether you're a lawyer or a furrier or a blacksmith or a farmer or a priest, you are to live for the glory of God. That is not something that is reserved for the the priests and for those in ministry. It's for all of mankind. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of God in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's the verse that soli deo gloria is founded upon. The Reformation reclaimed the scriptural teaching of the sovereignty of God over every aspect of the believer's life. And all of life is to be lived to the glory of God. That's their motive in reforming the church. In contrast to the monastic division of life into sacred versus secular perpetuated by the Roman church, the reformers saw all of life to be lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every activity of the Christian is to be sanctified unto the glory of God. And so we get this fifth motto, soli deo gloria. So, there you have the five pillars, if you will, of the Reformation. And I would hope that after hearing these tonight, maybe this is the first time you've seen these. Maybe you've heard of them, but not really dissected them to any degree. Hopefully, you would say, as you look into Rocky Point Baptist Church, I see evidence of those five pillars in our life as a congregation. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, for the glory of God alone. I pray that our church reflects those five tenets in everything that we do. In everything that we do. This should inform us and drive us in how we preach. How we teach. How we sing. How we give. How we partake of the Lord's Supper. How we worship in baptism. The the, the Catholic Church established seven sacraments. And these were works that got you into the good graces of God. Well, we believe in two, if you want to call them sacraments. Two ordinances. Believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself commanded us to do these two things. To baptize to the ends of the earth. And to do this in remembrance of me. Those are the two ordinances that Christ ordained. He didn't tell us to wash each other's feet. Literally. That was a figurative lesson on on how to relate to one another. But you don't see foot washing, do you? In any New Testament church in the Bible. Nor is it practiced to this day. Jesus Christ gave us two ordinances. And so the reformers said we're going to be about those two things that Christ alone said are important. And all these others, these other five marriage, the masses, so on and so forth. These are traditions of man, and they need to be removed from the practice of the church. Hopefully in church leadership, we understand that these five pillars of the Reformation are in place. We are not a church that is led by a senior pastor who basically is a Protestant pope in many churches. You've seen those churches where that one guy functions as if he were the pope 
and he might have some deacons, he might have some elders that are, that are acting like bishops, but they're just rubber stamping what the Pope of the church wants. That is not a biblical structure for church leadership. And so we here at Rocky Point Baptist Church, to guard against that, are elder-led by a plurality of six men together. That's stemming from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, hopefully we see these tenets in our missions and evangelism activities. Hopefully when we go to Jordan this Wednesday as a congregation through Greg Cowan, Scripture alone will be stood upon. Christ alone will be proclaimed. People will be urged to embrace the grace alone through faith alone and all of it's for the glory of God alone. We pray that that's what's happening in, in uh, Moyo, Uganda right now and we have great confidence that, that is what's happening and so we see this even living out in our missions and evangelism and finally in our giving and even in our benevolence we have taken care benevolently of the kitchens from scripture alone we have a scriptural mandate to do this based upon christ alone for the glory of god alone and you can fill in all the other blanks so these five tenets of the reformation should be found in the DNA of Rocky Point Baptist Church. And as I've studied this week, I did a quick inventory and looked across our church. And I'm going, yeah, I see this. I see this. And we never, ever need to relax on any one of these. Well, there you have it. Perfect timing. We're at 730. Any questions or comments before we break? Have you? Let me ask you, have you ever heard of the five solas? Raise your hand if you have. Okay? Did you know them? Okay? So, here's, here's what I want to do uh, next month. I may pair two of these together, or I may do them one at a time. But I want you to understand, these five solas are under attack in our modern culture. Christ alone. We've got a movie down in the movie house right now that's attacking the concept of Christ alone. It's called The Shack. And they quote Jesus in The Shack as saying, there are many roads back to God. I just happen to be one of them. That's what's wrong with that book and that movie. We've got scripture alone. We, we live in a culture that is pluralistic. We live in a post-truth culture. And Scripture claims to be absolute truth, so our culture is railing against sola scriptura. We still struggle. You and I struggle with this concept of grace alone. We still want to do some works, don't we? And we need to be ever guarded against this, this works-based salvation. This faith alone, faith is hard sometimes. And for the glory of God alone, oftentimes we're wanting the glory of our church or the glory of ourselves. We need to be jealous for the glory of God. And so each of these merits further discussion and real specific application to us in our current culture, in our current context. And I think that's where we'll go for the next few uh, monthly Reformation 500 meetings. So with that, let me pray for us and we will close for the evening and go into the night and get ready for a good week. Father, we thank you for... Uh, your providential hand in stirring the events of humanity over centuries to bring about the reformation of the one that your son Jesus Christ died for, the church. Father, we thank you for the instruction uh, that was not necessarily planned by the reformers, but as we look back on what they did, we see these five solas 
as being the structure that the church is to be built upon. And we thank you that we are informed by this and that we have this as a blueprint today to work by. Father, I pray for our church that we will be firmly established on these five points, unwavering, unflinching, even in a culture that rails against each of them in one way or another. Father, we pause now as we go into the night and start a week, and we pray yet again for Greg as he is going to depart Wednesday to go and be an extension of us into the world, proclaiming from Scripture alone the glory of you, God, alone. And we pray that that will be a fruitful endeavor for him and his team and for the glory of Jesus Christ in his great name. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord, the promised one who saves us from our sins, Jesus Christ. Amen.